to hope even in the midst of continuing weakness. And you give us confidence, confidence that you will indeed continue to advocate our cause as our heavenly high priest. For you are the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved. And we need then no other name. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work within us, strengthen our weak faith, Help us to know and worship you, our sovereign God, as you truly are, the unchangeable, sovereign, only wise King. And cause us to know the certainty of your great love for us until we are transformed into people who, who love you deeply and are able to run the race of obedience humbly with a strong confidence and hope in Christ. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would open our minds and declare to us your truth. We confess, Lord, that without your Spirit, we will have no understanding of your word. And so we pray, work within us, and open our our lips so that your name would be glorified by us, even as we join the heavenly worship service, and as we look forward to the return of our heavenly King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The sermon this afternoon is taken from, or based upon 1 Peter 1, the verses 13 to 16, and in connection with that, we also read from the Gospel of Matthew, from one of the parables of Jesus, the parable of the, the ten virgins who have these lamps, and five of them are foolish, and five of them are, are wise. So we'll read the Matthew 25, the verses 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And in response, let's, and in preparation as well, let's sing Psalm 119, stanzas 40 and 42. Oh. 
the text for this sermon is 1 Peter chapter 1, the verses uh, 13, and, 13 to 16. Um, it was some weeks ago, I think, since I preached on 1 Peter here. So just for context, I'll begin reading at verse 1. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, and this is our text, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, we we read of how our Lord compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And this is a common image in scripture often the life of the believer and and their relationship with god is compared to a wedding a wedding feast and we're told that there is a wedding feast in store for the christian believers many of you know that wedding planning can be all consuming it's certainly the preparation that goes into it, it there's a lot of excitement but there's a ton of work too And at a certain point in in the planning of a wedding, it requires all of your attention and people can get very stressed out and very busy, but in the end, they know that the work they put into it will be worth it. It will make the day special. 
Well, in First Peter, the apostle has worked through the great salvation that is in store for us. He's spoken about this, this wedding, even if he hasn't really used that terminology. And now he reminds us once again that there's another day ahead that we have to stand prepared for the day of the wedding feast. And so he reminded us previously that we are exiles waiting for a new home and that during our time on this earth, during the time of our exile here, we will also receive God's mercy and grace constantly throughout our lives. He will never abandon us. And he, God has promised to sprinkle us with the blood of Christ and thereby we're sealed for the great day. And God has promised to, to make us be born again. He's given us new birth into a living hope that is preserved and ready to be revealed on that great day. These are the great promises that Peter has spoken of in this first chapter, the first half of this chapter. And then we come to our text, and the question Peter is answering is the, the so what question. Now, if all this, this beginning of this chapter is all true, okay, how does that influence us? How does that impact how we live here during our time of exile? And we'll see that through Peter, God calls us during our time of exile to have our hope set fully upon the grace that is going to be revealed to us. And it's when we have this, this, our gaze fixed firmly on this hope in store for us, then that also motivates us and, and motivates us to live as holy children. So we're hopeful children and we're holy children. First then, with the, with the glorious truth of our salvation and the truth of what God has done for us in Christ, Peter, he commands us to set our hopes fully on the grace of God. And that's the main imperative, the main command in this passage. And what this is saying is that you need to stay focused. You need to keep your gaze fixed on the grace of God that will be revealed to us, the glorious future of that wedding feast. We have to have tunnel vision, as it were. Keep our gaze focused on that great day. And that can certainly be a difficult thing to do, and, and Peter knew that. For Peter's first readers, the the second coming of Christ seemed to be taking forever. These were people, remember, who had been kicked out of their homeland and and sent into exile. They're living as as exiles in in modern-day Turkey. They'd lost everything. From some of the other letters, Paul's letters, for instance, we know that people were asking questions. When is Christ returning? People are dying. Have we missed out on the resurrection? Is all of this worth worth it? Where is Christ? And for us today, the return of Christ can, can seem like it's taking a long time as well, and we can be tempted to live as if it will never actually come. We've become used to the reality that for, for God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, and we just live life as if nothing is in store for us. We can become lost in the day-to-day, the day-to-day affairs of life and forget about the grace that we'll receive at Christ's return. We, our focus shifts away 
from the grace of God. And well, to Christians of the past and Christians of today, Peter, he says, you have been given grace. You have been given a grace that will be fully experienced at the coming of Jesus Christ. So now set your hope fully on the grace. Keep this hope at the forefront of your mind. Keep this hope at the forefront of your mind. And this hope that we have, this Christian hope, it's not hope like, like hoping to win a door prize when you, when you go to a fundraiser at John Calvin or, or, or a hope like hoping that gas prices will go down. That's not the type of hope that Peter refers to. This is a, a knowing hope. Christian hope is a, a certain hope. For the kids here, you've, you've recently celebrated Christmas, and you probably had a Christmas tree in your house. Maybe some of you still have your Christmas trees up. I don't know. But, but you would have had presents underneath those trees. And there would have been names on those presents. And you could see, this present is mine. That's the certain hope. This is the present that we, we have. We've been told about it in Scripture. We don't yet fully experience it. And yet there is a sense in which the gift is already ours. This grace that Peter is talking about, it already is ours in a sense. But just like children, there's, there's this sense of anticipation for the day when you can actually open up those presents. You're waiting excitedly to unwrap the gift and receive the fullness of the gift. You see the gift and you know that the time is coming when you'll actually be able to unwrap it and your hope and your anticipation is fully set, fully fixed on that that gift. And our Christian hope is, is similar. It's this already but, but not yet kind of hope. In Christ, we have this certain hope, the hope of, of the resurrection because Christ himself was resurrected and we now await our, our own resurrected bodies, our, our glorified bodies when we will be made imperishable and unfading and undefiled. And we wait for the great marriage feast of the Lamb And as believers who are united to Christ, you have the assurance that just as Jesus lives forever, so you also, beginning now already, do live forever and you will live forever. And so he gives us this eternal hope, this eternal salvation that we experience already now, and one day we will receive in full what we now possess only in part. And so we are filled with this hope of the return of Christ, the wedding feast and the gift of of immortality. The day when we see our Savior face to face and we have this fuller and more glorious union with him and this fuller and more glorious union with one another when broken relationships are mended, when above all else our relationship with God will be perfected. And this is the grace of God that will Peter says, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at his second coming. And notice that Peter, he says that this is brought to you. It's brought to us. Earlier, Peter, when he spoke about the inheritance in store for us, he said it's ready, it's prepared. God has done the work. Now he says we don't have to purchase it, we don't have to earn it, it will be brought with the coming of Christ. It will be given to us at his return. And so this is what we hope for in in anticipation and in excitement. 
And yet there is a catch, as we also read from Matthew 25, because we don't know when the second coming of Christ will be. And so this passage, it also, it also serves as a, a wake-up call for us, just as it did for the early church. We have to stand prepared. We don't know the day or the moment of Christ's return. It may, be, may have been 2,000 years since he last walked this earth, but he certainly could return today or tomorrow. And he will come like a thief in the night. And so Peter, he calls us to stand ready awaiting the return of our Lord and Master. Because like the five foolish women, when he returns, you won't be able to ask for some time to to run and buy oil for your lamps. We're called to live as those who are eagerly awaiting and prepared for the fullness of our redemption. We're called to have our hope fully fixed on the grace that will be brought to us at Christ's return. And so we fix our hope solely on the return of Christ. And we let this hope shape our lives. And letting this hope shape your life, that means that you don't set your hope on your earthly circumstances. Your hope isn't found in your education or your next promotion or your status or your money or your place in the community. No, your hope is fixed on the grace to be revealed to you. It's fixed on the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is a hope so much greater and superior to anything that we might hope for in this life. It raises the question, though, how do we actually set your hope fully on this? How do you set your hope on this? Well, Peter, he, he says there's two, two ways, two things you have to do. First, he says, by preparing your minds for action. And secondly, being sober-minded. And that phrase, preparing your mind for action, in the Greek, it, it really it's, it says, and some of the older translations probably say this too, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. In the in the Greek and Roman world and throughout ancient times as well, it was common to, for people to wear tunics, basically a, a, a glorified bathrobe, essentially. And these were, were fashionable, but they weren't very practical. When you had to do something, if you had to run somewhere, you're going to end up tripping over yourself. You can't move fast. You can't really work in them. And so what they would do is they would gird up their tunics, And they would basically tie a knot in it or you would tuck it into your belt and then you could move quickly without tripping over yourself and you could work hard without your clothing restricting you. And Peter is saying this is what we have to do with our minds. In the same way, we are called to prepare our minds for action, to make sure that there's nothing that would restrict us or distract us from having our hope set fully on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace in store for us. And so we set our hope on the future grace by having the mental resolve and and conviction to press on towards it, to stand firm, to stand firm as we continue waiting for it to be brought to us. And we go to war with unbiblical thinking. 
We saturate our minds with God's word, not just on on Sunday, but throughout the week, so that more and more our minds would be renewed and transformed by the Spirit of Christ. That's the first way that we prepare, that we set our hope fully on the grace of God. The second way, Peter says, is by being sober-minded. Now, you all know alcohol and, and drugs, it clouds the mind. It influences our, our thinking. And in a similar way, Peter says that we are to keep our minds free from anything that would cloud our judgment. We're to be sober-minded. Keep your focus on the grace being revealed to us and clear out the distractions. Don't let the outside pressures or present circumstances influence our thinking, but focus on the reality. And so it's a call to be, to be vigilant and to stand and anticipating the return of Christ, to be on guard against our spiritual enemies, to be prepared to wage war against the temptations of the flesh and the assaults of Satan, anything that would distract us from our Christian calling. And this is so important, and Peter, he shows this later on in his letter, in chapter 4 or 5. He talks about Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I don't know how many of you have gone camping out in the, out in the bush, but sometimes you'll see warning signs, bear in area, caution. Well, how would you behave if you knew there were a bear in the area when you're camping? Well, Peter uses a similar thing. This, the, Satan, this lion, is prowling around looking for someone to devour. And this is the reality that we have to recognize as Christians, is that Satan is, he's defeated, but he's still a threat. And he's trying to take down as many people as he can with him. He's seeking to devour Christians. You see, Satan, he already has the world. He doesn't need to chase after the world. He doesn't need to have to hunt the world. He hunts Christians. Satan and all his hosts, he wants to cloud your mind so that you're not thinking about the grace of God, so that instead you're just focused on the here and the now by the distractions of life. Satan and all his hosts, he wants you to think of the wedding feast as a, as a day that won't come in your lifetime. He wants to catch you unprepared so that when the grace of God is fully revealed and given to God's people at his return, that you'll be like the foolish women who had no lamps or no oil for their lamps. And Satan tells us that we have tomorrow to repent. Leave it till tomorrow. But brothers and sisters, don't wait until tomorrow. When Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, there he implores them. He begs them to be reconciled to God. He he says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the day of salvation. And if you believe, then you have the promise that whoever comes to Christ, whoever believes in him, he will never cast out. And yet we also have the command to make our calling and election sure, to persevere, 
to hold fast to the faith once for all handed down to us. And so, brothers and sisters, stand sober and set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you, the grace that will be brought to you. Because our work is not done simply because God has brought us into a state of grace. We have a journey to go on. We have a race to run. We have a war to fight. And we have to be prepared for that. We have to roll up our sleeves and get ready to stand firm, to stand fast and to persevere, casting off whatever might trip us up or distract us. And we should look at our own lives. We should look at our own lives and ask ourselves, what is in my life that I need to cast off so that I can be prepared to stand, so that I'm not distracted, so that I can be sober. We all have ways that the world influences our thinking. We live as exiles. We're influenced by the world. We, we have to look at those things and address those influences so that our lamps can burn bright and clear, so that we can stand with our hope fully set on the grace that will be ours, the grace that will be revealed to us at the wedding feast of the Lamb, which Christ has bought and purchased for us. And when we do that, when we have our hope fixed securely on Christ and what he has done for us, then we can also live as God's holy children. Sorry. How do you live knowing that this grace is yours and is going to be given to you? Well, Peter, he goes on to to tell us, now that we've been adopted by the Father and promised this amazing grace, he tells us to live as obedient children. We live as those who have been saved and adopted by the grace of our Father and not like those who are ignorant about the God who, who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And the glorious thing about this is that you fix your gaze on Christ and on what he has done. You see the amazing love of Christ and how he has purchased you, he has redeemed you, you've been sprinkled by his blood. And then you see this awesome transformation because the love of Jesus Christ is so astonishing that he will go to those who are dead in their trespasses and and sins and he will take them as they are, he will bring them back to life. He will take sinners in as they are. But his love is also so great and so transformative that he doesn't let them stay as they are. He renews them. He transforms them by his spirit. He makes the dry bones come to life. And this is the transformation that Peter is speaking about when he says that we are to live now as as obedient children, relying on the spirit. We no longer chase after the worldly passions or revel in ungodliness. We've been reborn of imperishable seed. And now the Spirit of Christ, it works within us so that we rely on the Spirit in order to to drive out any sinful desires that might remain within us. And we strive to, with the Spirit, he renews our minds so that we live as as God desires us to live. We live as, as holy children God desires, in verse 15, he desires his children to live holy lives. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
God calls us from death to life. He causes us to be born again into a living hope. And that means that then we have to live as, as our Father lives, essentially, right? You, you imitate the Father. You live a holy life as your Father is holy. And this calling to, to live a holy life that Peter speaks about here, it's nothing, it's nothing new. And Peter goes on to quote a phrase that pops up several times in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 11, God said, I am the Lord your God who, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. That's in Leviticus 11. And then later on in Leviticus chapter 20, he says, You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And all that comes in between from Leviticus 11 to Leviticus 20. Sometimes it's called the holiness code. It's a a code of conduct essentially given to the Israelites to, to show them how they would live, how they were to live in the land God was bringing them into. How do God's redeemed people live? Distinct and separate from the nations around them. That was the goal of that that holiness code, to make his people holy, or holy in their conduct, I should say. And now we, we see that the goal of both the Old and the New Testament is actually the same. God's goal is to create a people who are holy even as he is holy. Holiness is to shape our lives as Christians. And not in, in just some of our behavior, but in all of our behavior. Much like if you, if you think someone's wearing a, a, a white wedding dress, they're not just going to avoid some of the mud, they're going to avoid all of the mud. It means you, you, you separate yourself then from all that is sinful and, and you live moral and pure lives and in a holy manner because you've received this holy calling from your gracious God. As one preacher put it, we've been called by a holy God. We've been saved by a holy Savior. We are indwelt by a holy spirit because we have received the holy scripture and been given a new holy nature. And so we are to be holy in all of our conduct. In our entire life on this earth, as our Father is holy, so we also are to be holy. And throughout this letter, If you read the rest of this letter, it's not long. You can probably read it in 30 minutes. Peter outlines what it means to live as holy children who are living in exile, living as strangers in the world. In chapter 1, he shows that it means that we we will grow in our sanctification. And then in, in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, he, he shows that being holy children means that we have a sincere love for our brothers and sisters within the church and also towards those who are not in the church. And then he shows in chapter 2 and 3 that it means that we submit to authorities, even to unjust rulers. And it means that we have a willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And it means we devote ourselves in service to, to the new family into which our Father has adopted us. Peter goes on to show that in chapters 4 and 5. And all of this, it reflects the, the holy character of God. 
The holy character of the Father, the Father who, who says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires that they repent. Who sent his Son to minister to those who are scattered like, like sheep without a shepherd. Who allowed his Son to submit himself to unjust rulers and suffered for the sake of the gospel for our sake, and who now lives and reigns. When we live lives that reflect our Father's holy character, that's when we demonstrate that we truly do have our gaze fixed on the grace to be revealed. We truly and fully, sorry, when we live lives that reflect our Father's holy character, then we demonstrate that we have truly and fully driven deep into our minds and hearts the call to live as those who are in this world, but not of this world. As those who have their hope set on their eternal inheritance. And that's something that you and I have to, have to struggle with every day of our lives as we suffer the, the effects of sin and temptation. And there may be times when we find ourselves trapped and enslaved to sin. There may be times when we show to the world that we actually value and treasure the things of this life and lose sight of the grace that will be revealed to us. And yet by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit, we can indeed make progress in the pursuit of personal holiness. The Apostle Paul, he writes that the grace of God has appeared and trains us to turn our backs on all ungodliness and worldly passions and causes us instead to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, even as we await the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Spirit is at work within us. And the Spirit, he trains us so that we can stand, so that we can have our lamps burning bright and clear. With the oil burning and the wicks trimmed, we eagerly await the grace to be brought to us. And yet in all of this, we aren't just passive agents. We aren't just stalks and blocks. We also have a responsibility to work out what the Spirit works within us, as Paul says. It's much like the the dead man, Lazarus. When Jesus stood before the tomb of of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for, for several days, we all know Lazarus, he had no role in giving himself life. He was dead. It was Jesus, or the Spirit of Jesus, that gave new life to Lazarus. Yet in John 11, verse 43, Jesus, he says to the dead man, Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And the next verse says, the man who had died came out. And that new life that Jesus gave Lazarus, it's a picture of the new life that Jesus gives us as well. We were dead in our sins, but the instant that God gives us new life, we do indeed do the living. And so now that we have been born again of, of imperishable seed, we do the living as God's redeemed, rescued children, and as his holy children. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a great hope in store for us. There is a, a great wedding feast 
and a great resurrection day when we will experience the fullness of what Christ purchased for us and what he has promised to bring us. But we also don't sit idly by just waiting. Peter calls us to prepare our minds for action, to stand sober waiting for our Lord's return and to stand on guard against the assaults of Satan, to live as holy children as those who have been saved by the Lord. And the psalmist, in Psalm 116, he, he shows what this looks like in this beautiful phrase, as we have it in the book of praise. Those who have been saved from death's abyss, those who now lift up the cup of his salvation, and we are those who live lives that praise him constantly. Amen. In response, let's sing from that psalm, Psalm 116, the stanzas 5, 7, and 9.